Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 30th, 2018, and we kind of mark a... Uh, a double landmark today, right? March 30th. We will, uh, next time we get together, it will be April. There'll be no April Fool's jokes on you because it'll be April 2nd on Monday. April 1st is on Easter Sunday. So that means you should fill your kids' uh, plastic eggs that they go hunt for with something that they're not looking for as an April Fool's joke. I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so, but we, we are ending a month and then we are we're having like an episode that ends uh, a, a numeric sequence, right? Today's episode is 2199, which means when we come back together, episode 2200 of the Survival Podcast. And you know what that all means? Oh, wait a minute. We're coming back April. First quarter of the year, 2018, poof, gone. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. And we'll be talking about that in my anchor segment at the end of today's show in a unique way. Before we do that, let me remind, let me tell you about all the stuff we're going to talk about today. This is Expert Council Q&A Show. This is where you send me questions with T-S-P-C, all together like it's a word, T-S-P-C, space, expert, in the subject line. Then you tell me the expert council member that you want to hear from, and you give me their question and the details. Question first, details second. Do that, you're likely to get an answer from a council member, and it's likely that you will get the answer that you're looking for. I always say, question first, detail second, but put as much detail into that detail segment as you can do so, especially with complex things like questions about landforms and stuff like that. Anyway, so here's what we're going to hear about today. Using PTO generators as a backup power system from Stephen Harris. How to evaluate a used wood stove you're thinking about buying from Ben Evolk. And then we're going to hear from the other Ben, all about token splits from Benjamin Fitz. And then a cryptocurrency question for Jeff Lawton. And that is, can cryptocurrency and permaculture be compatible? And you will hear my re rebuttal, I guess it's not really the right, my alternate opinion uh, from Jeff's about cryptocurrency. We'll have what we call an amicable disagreement. And what's interesting is Jeff's reasoning is totally different than what the, the person asking the question was really asking the question about. Uh, next up, restoring a vehicle that has been neglected by a prior owner, user, etc. with Charles the Humble Mechanic Sandville. Using propolis for medicinal reasons with Michael Jordan, a.k.a. the Bee Whisperer. Construction of a solar dehydrator from the Duke of Permaculture, Paul Wheaton, with uh, accompaniment by Josiah Wallingford, guy we haven't heard from for a while. And then I have an ending segment called Reflections on Four Years of Food Forestry. Those of you that saw the video I put out probably know sort of where I'm going with this anyway. We'll have all of that and more for you in just a bit. Before we get into it, let's take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 116. In the year 116 from David Verne at TSB Wiki, we have... The high water mark. This spring, Trajan and part of his army sailed down the Tigris to the Persian Gulf, where they captured an important trade city of Caracas. Not Caracas, Caroxus, I guess is how you say that. As he looked out over the ocean, Trajan expressed regret that he was too old to continue to India like Alexander the Great. Trajan also took the time to visit the ancient city of Babylon. While Trajan was playing tourist and taking in the sights, the conquered territories revolted and expelled the garrison Romans. 
Trajan managed to reconquer most of the Parthian territory, but instead of annexing it, he appoints a Parthian nobleman to rule Parthia as a client kingdom. While the Romans were successful, this year wore them down, and the elderly emperor was exhausted, so they returned to Antioch. My take by David Verne. The empire was a little larger than the U.S., and it was a nightmare to manage and control. Messages took days or weeks to reach Rome, and the east and west sides of the empire began to diverge culturally. This expansion into hostile territory, which already saw itself as belonging to an empire, would prove to be unsustainable. And Hayden, the next emperor, will abandon the territory before it causes too many problems, which is probably a good thing. I have a different thought on this, and it, it is all back to the high watermark. Another historical event uh, that has nothing really to do with this one, but it's what I want to talk about today real quick with you to just understand our place in history. The high watermark, there's a place called the High Tide Line, or the High Tide Line of the South during the war between the states in the 1860s here in the United States at the Battle of Gettysburg. There is a place in Gettysburg that you should visit if you ever get a chance to, where hundreds upon hundreds of Americans lie in graves in, with headstones that are curved. And one head, they're, they're kind of like a curb on a street about that size. And one headstone is quite long and will have the names of many soldiers And soldiers from the north and the south lie side by side at this place. And it is near this place known as the High Tide Line of the South. It was during one of the last charges of the south at the Battle of Gettysburg they reached the highest point on this hill. And as brother killed brother, eventually the north went out and the tide began to recede, leading to the inevitable march into the south the takeover, the ending of the war, reconstruction, etc., many of the things that shape where we are today. I stood at that spot when I was an eighth grader on a trip from Jacksonville, Florida. We went to both Gettysburg and Washington, D.C. And while many things have changed in my life since then, and many of my views politically, etc., have changed, as you might imagine, being in my mid-40s now and having been, what, 13 then, I will never forget standing in that place, at that solemn place where so many men gave their lives. And what I would encourage you when it comes to history, one of the reasons I think children find history boring is instead of telling stories and taking them places, we talk about dates and names and facts. I hope in this walk through history that we've been doing together that you've realized the, the real costs of lives and the real stories and the real drama that is our historical past as humans throughout the planet. And if you want your children to be impacted by history, take them to places like the Vietnam Memorial. Let them put their hands on that wall and actually feel it instead of look at a picture of it. Take them to the battlefields of Gettysburg. Take them to the other battlefields of the Civil War. Take them to a museum where they will look at a bullet that a soldier nearly built, bit clean through while they amputated his leg. You may think it's too much for them, but I think shielding our children from these realities is one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in today. By understanding how much was given to have what we have, maybe we people would value it a little bit more and be a little less quick to, to actually call for it to be taken away. My thoughts by Jack Spierko. 
Anyway, with that, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do here, you can help support us by becoming a member of the MSB. To learn more about that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to become a member. But don't you do it today. Don't you do it today. What? This guy sells a membership? No, don't buy it today. I'm going to run a sale next week. I'll launch it on Monday morning. If you buy it today... You'll be mad at me Monday morning, so don't become a member today. Wait till Monday. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into this. My lead-off question today is for uh, expert council member Stephen Harris on PTO generators as backup power systems. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling me into the expert panel to answer your question. Got a good one here from Derek in Pennsylvania. Question. Are PTO generators something that should be considered if you already have a tractor and you're looking to add alternative power options to your home? Uh, one, you need to go listen to my generator show, one and two, at uh, solar1234.com or steven1234.com. I cover all types of generators in there in explicit detail. Now, to answer your question, hell yeah. Background. I just purchased a new 26 horsepower tractor, a Kubota B2650. That's a heck of a unit. 19.5 horsepower at the PTO. That stands for the power takeoff. That's the rotating shaft behind the vehicle that you can hook up things to do other stuff like mowers and hydraulic pumps. You name it, you can do it. But a 19.5 horsepower PTO. That's meant to power other things. So that's where the generator would hook up to. Separately, I've been looking, can, been looking and considering a more permanent generator hookup install for my home, either a cut over switch between the main panel, not for the whole house. <laughs> I'll cover that in a second. Or a separate generator transfer switch sub panel combo. In other words, lots of electrical work. Yes, I could use extension cords, but I would rather have a more permanent solution that is less risky for the toddler. I'm aware that PTO generators exist, and they seem to offer good value with less engines to maintain. That's because you already got a $14,000 to $25,000 tractor and engine. So, hell yeah! Uh, so, with less engine to maintain in the long run, I understand the tractor can't be used for clearing debris, if it's powering the house, true. But that's easy workaround, keeping it hooked up only when needed. <laughs> needed is all the damn time, okay? You're going to unhook it to go clean the road as needed. You're going to be powering the house with that thing. So does this jive with Steve's approach to a car as a generator approach? <laughs> car as a generator is where you hook up and then your how to power your house from your car. Probably one of the best shows I've ever done with Jack Spierko. And uh, he even said once that it was probably one of the top shows that has helped the most people. So go to solar1234.com or steven1234.com and look for how to power your house from your car. That's with Jack and me. So you hook up an inverter and then you run extension cords into your house and you recharge AA batteries and D-cell batteries and uh, lanterns and your cell phones and your tablet and you run a small TV and maybe the car's at idle. You might power your refrigerator for an hour, then your freezer for an hour, do that two or three times a day. That's power your house from your car. 
Okay, you have a Kubota tractor, a probably diesel engine. You got a 19.5 horsepower PTO. Screw all of the ideas of I'm going to install a sub panel to only need to power part of my house. You go get a PTO generator. I'm on Northern Tool right now, and I'm looking at a North Star Pro generator. 7,200 rated watts, 14 horsepower a PTO needed. You got 19 and a half. The generator is only $949. You don't power part of your house or only what's needed. You power the entire damn house. You got 720 rated watts. You know, that's more than your electrical sub-panel can handle. This is 240 volts at 30 amps, which is 7,200 watts. And that should be enough to run your AC, your uh, central air conditioner. So on top of the 950 bucks for the generator, you're going to want to spend another 330 for probably the PTO generator driveline. That's the drive shaft. And then, if you want to be really convenient and handy, you want the little itty-bitty trailer that the PTO sits on. Unfortunately, that's 680 bucks as well. If you put it all together, I mean, you're looking at less than 2000 bucks for a 7,200-watt diesel generator that, you know, is it's portable. It can go anywhere on your farm. I mean, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you're talking about clearing the roads and stuff and yeah, you can take the kabuto out, but I mean, sometime you're going to have to run a chainsaw. You know, with this thing behind you, you can run an electric chainsaw and cut through a lot of stuff. Jack and I talked about that in the last bug out trailer episode, which if you're missing it, it is the first Tuesday of every month. It's Jack and I brainstorming and it's been fabulous. Bug Out Trailer Show number five coming up. So uh, that gives you a plus you're out and about. You can get electric power. You can now have lights. You can now help other people. Oh, my freezer's full of beef and it's rotting air, ma'am. I'll drive my Kabuta over and plug into your freezer and cool it down for you for a couple hours. Meanwhile, your family is sweltering in the heat back in your house. So drive the Kabuto back over to the house and hook back into the whole entire house and power your central AC. A PTO is an incredible option for a generator. Sometimes, I mean, they're not as good as a power as like off of an inverter generator. And you might have to go out, whether you got automatic speed adjustment or not, the PTO has to run at 540 RPMs in order for the generator to be putting out 60 hertz. The really good ones, like your Kubota, probably will all mat automatically adjust the engine speed up and down to match the load. So when your central AC comes on, bigger load, it's going to draw down the voltage, it's going to slow down the PTO. The tractor senses it and cranks the engine RPM up. If it was an old-fashioned trailer, you know, like the red type of trailer with the big tires and stuff with a PTO. You'd have to manually go out and shove the lever forward on the engine idle speed to increase the speed of the engine for to increase the speed of the PTO. 
But, hey, no big deal. You're powering your entire darn house, and you're doing it on a diesel engine at record-level fuel efficiency. Go listen. If you got, you're got, you really wondering, like, do I want a two-cycle generator? Do I want a inverter generator? Do I want a traditional generator? Do I want a PTO generator? Do I want a trailer generator? Do I want a military surplus generator? Go listen to my generator shows one and two. They're from Jack and I. And they're on solar1234.com. Just click on them and listen to them. They're free. Everything I said a couple years ago holds true for everything now. So it will really help you decide what's good for you. You might go with the Harbor Freight Northern Tool two-cycle generator for 89 bucks. That's only 700 watts. It's just perfect for what I need. But, yeah, the Kabuto is a really good option for your PTO generator as part of your overall energy strategy. Now, if you got like natural gas or a big propane pig and you want to have a more permanent home generator set up, I just counseled a lady on doing it out in Reno, Nevada. Cost her $12,000. You know, you go through Home Depot and it says 4000 5000 No, tell you what. By the time you pour a concrete pad, rewire the electrical uh, box, you know, to accept the automatic transfer over, and you have a plumber run the gas line to it and everything else, you're looking at like 12000 bucks. Power fails. It turns on. Powers the entire house. You don't have to do nothing. Power comes back on. It waits for like 15 minutes for the power to stay on. Turns itself off. And then, you know, and the grid goes back to powering the house. If the power fails again, it switches over automatically. You don't need to worry about anything. Powers the whole house. Freezer, electrical, uh, refrigerator, central AC. The whole damn thing is powered by a whole house generator. That's a pretty good option because everything in your house is working. So... This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Very good question. Thank you for calling or emailing it in. If you want to see all of the stuff I have done with Jack, please head on over to Stephen1234.com and sign up for my email list because email people get special things. Like when I'm going to have their big northeastern blizzards, like the three that happen, I say, I'm going to have an Ask Steve Anything conference call regarding to regarding power outages and stuff. And people on my email list got those emails and got to be in on the conference call for nothing. Uh, you get to listen to the recording, but they were online in real time and talking with me. So it pays to be an email member of Stephen Harris's list. And no, I don't send spam. God, I have... I'm delinquent on my email. I should have been sending stuff out every week, and it's been like a month. So talk to you guys next week. Next, we have a question for Ben Falk, who specializes in uh, cold climate, specifically cold northeastern climate. That would be uh, wet cold climates uh, like New England, being there in the Mad River Valley of Vermont, on wood stoves. And Ben knows a lot about wood stoves and does an awful lot with a wood stove on his property. We have a question here for him about how to evaluate a wood stove. If you're going to buy one that's used. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question about the uh, Waterford Stanley Cook stove and also evaluating stoves in general and how to get it into a pickup. Um, you, this, The link you sent me um, 
you know, looks good. $2,500 isn't the cheap end of what you can find those for, but it's also less than half of what they are new, and they should last life a lifetime or more if they're treated well. So, you know, it's definitely a good value if it's in good shape. As far as determining if it is in good shape, um, you're really looking for any cracks. You want to, like, open the whole thing up, um, have a good flashlight, clean it out, make sure there's really no cracks of any significance inside the stove. I actually have one Stanley uh, that has a crack on the top where they're prone to cracking, which is on the the front and back end of the uh, cast iron top where it's very narrow um, around the the um, kind of flap on top that opens and I fired it up slowly it was very cold in a wood shop um, it was probably you know five degrees outside in there or something and I fired it up really slowly but still cracked it's still in totally usable, usable condition but it's a bit of a drag that there's that crack so look for any cracks um, Cast iron is prone to cracking if it's not, you know, heated up slowly or, you know, not, isn't as long as it's not overfired. Um, there's the panels inside are replaceable. Um, look for the condition of those. Those do tend to burn out the side and back panels, um, as well as the grate can burn out. Um, those are replaceable items, but they cost, you know, a hundred to two hundred fifty dollars for depending on the part. From Lehman's is one of the only importers now of that stuff in Ohio. Um, yeah, that's really about it. You're looking for any significant rust, but a lot of rust can be removed very easily. Um, and then you're looking for joints in cast iron in general. Those can be rebuilt, um, but, you know, you're, that's something to to check out because work would have to go into those joints. I do, I haven't found a Waterford Stanley or almost any stove. It doesn't require some stove cement here and there on joints, especially joints near the oven or in the oven. Um, but yeah, just give look at all surfaces of the stove basically um, for cracks, rust, and the joints. And that's um, I think really all I can think of. I'm sure there's there's some, a few other things, but um, that's the main of it. As far as um, getting in your in your in your uh, pickup, usually it takes a few folks or a tractor with it on pallets or or chains, you know, carefully done. Um, that's how I've always done it. I'm sure there's some other tricks, you know, like rail, like big, long pieces of wood and sliding it up with a, with a winch or a, a ratchet strap. That'd be slow, but it might work if you only have one person. Um, so, yeah, good luck to you. Next up, I have a question for expert councilman Benjamin Fitz. Uh Expert councilman, expert council member uh, Benjamin Fitz on specifically the wax token, but dealing with when a company decides to split a token and do an exchange and why they would do that, especially at this time in history. Uh, ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners, this is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch, and we have a question that came in to the TSP expert council on cryptocurrency. And that question comes from Glenn. And Glenn asks, what to do when a crypto is planning to issue two versions of their token? The first using ERC-20, that's a token on the Ethereum blockchain. And the second final product using their own custom blockchain. He says that they're being told that instead of burning the ERC-20 token, they're issuing the custom token to holders of the ERC-20 token at a one-to-one ratio. Okay. Um... The quick background on this is that this is coming from something called WAX, 
which is going to be a platform for trading of digital assets. They currently have developed a platform called OP Skins for trading digital assets in video games like um, CSGO, Counter-Strike, um, H1Z1, and, and those types of games. And um, that's where this is all coming from. But the point is, what happens with these tokens? In the past with an ICO... My understanding from a conference I was at recently was that a lot of these companies were, if, if there wasn't a utility to the actual token, then what they were really selling was an investment. So the token wasn't actually going to be used for anything except for to raise money. Um, so that would be the ERC-20 token that exists on the Ethereum blockchain. There's literally no use for it except for buying and selling on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so by creating this WAX token on their own blockchain, what they are doing is they are giving a use to the token. And this is going to help them in terms of the government and avoiding the regulators that are going after people that are doing these ICOs illegally because they're trying, those companies were trying to skirt the investment rules and we're basically selling investments without going through any of the proper procedures. Um, so by creating their own token on their own blockchain, they're going to get around. Uh, it should help them at least. I don't know that it's going to make them, you know, not have issues with SEC. They still may have issues, but they're going to be much less likely to have issues than the companies that have no use for their token whatsoever. Um, typically what happens when something like this happens is you need to go to a website and you need to register that you have these tokens so that when the new, um, blockchain is launched, you get the new token. So, um, like I'm invested in EOS tokens right now. And when EOS launches, I have to have registered my tokens in order to get my EOS tokens on their blockchain when their blockchain goes live. So it's not uncommon. Um, I, you'll have to look into the specific one, Glenn, the specific one, Wax. I don't know a lot about Wax. I don't really have time to game these days, so I don't really follow it. Um, but you'll have to look into their specifics, like whether or not you need to register um, your address that holds the tokens. And usually when that happens, you don't want to have your token on an exchange. You need to have it in a wallet like MetaMask or Ether Wallet, something like that that can hold tokens. Um, I guess the Edge Wallet can hold tokens on your phone too. Um, the Edge Wallet can hold any ERC-20 token. You need to have it in your own wallet because if it's on an exchange, what happens is basically the exchange gets credit for your coin, your your wax token on the wax blockchain would get would go to the exchange so you need to take it off of an exchange and put it into a wallet um, i use both metamask and my ether wallet which are browser-based wallets and then i also have the edge wallet on my phone which is again a very secure wallet um, and it supports all erc20 tokens um, you can add tokens to your edge wallet so that's what I would suggest for that. And it's pretty common. I think we'll see this more often 
as some of these ICOs try to take a step backwards and make sure that they're not going to be in violation with the SEC. Now that you see SEC going after all these companies that did these ICOs, we're going to see a lot more companies trying to make sure that there's an actual use for their token. So um, I think it's pretty common, and it is a great question, Glenn, because all of this is changing. Like just in the past month or two, you know, things have really changed in this arena. So it's a very timely question, and thank you for asking. And this has been with Crypto Gulch and the Survival Podcast Expert Council. Thank you, Jack, and thank you, listeners. Have a great day. Now, as, as I said, we have a cryptocurrency question for Jeff Lawton on the compatibility between cryptocurrency uh, and permaculture. And I think the question is coming from the standpoint of how much energy is used in cryptocurrency mining. Um, Jeff's take has almost nothing to do with that. I'll let Jeff speak for himself, and I'll tell you when I come back why I disagree, even though I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying maybe he's not right, if that makes sense. Here we go. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. Now I have a question in relation to one of my newsletters where I express concern for the future of Bitcoin. And the question is, do I feel that blockchain technology can go green and fit into permaculture designs that are aligned with the social structures provided in the permaculture Designer's Manual, Chapter 14, Strategies for an Alternative Global Nation. Well, no, I don't think so, because I see Bitcoin and block, you know, blockchain type systems as a perfect false flag that could have been easily set up by the powers to be that actually want to create a cashless world. It's a perfect situation where we've been tested to see if Bitcoin and blockchain systems can work. There's been large denomination of notes taken out of the largest cash currency in the world, India, just to see if it caused real issues. And it didn't because most people saved all their money in large denomination notes and they then had to register with the banks. Now, People are already serving prison time for supposedly laundering money. I don't know how that actually works, but anyway, laundering money through Bitcoin-type systems. It seems obvious to me we're being trialled, and this system is going to be made illegal. In fact, all cryptocurrency is probably going to be made illegal pretty soon. And that gives the government an excuse and gives the world's powers excuse to create a moneyless world a world that is controlled on the internet a world that will never have any influence on from uh, the ground so as bill often said about permaculture it may be a system which we could call an ethical design science but it would be better to call it a system of sedition, a system where we can be sufficient to ourselves and we don't need authorities and we don't need governments. If we rely on the internet for our currency exchange, then we're relying on the system that we have no control over and that is obviously easily able to control us. 
So I don't think it fits at all. I think we're much better off with our standard local money systems or even better, our local money less systems where we just barter and exchange everything at the bioregional level where we identify ourselves to our bioregion, we the people of the land, the land has the identifying element of us, the people. So when I sent this to Jeff, I actually told him to check into proof of stake because it addresses the concern that I think the original person was asking about. So I want to start out with speaking to that a little bit. So proof of work requires computers to do complex mathematical problems. And the more popular a cryptocurrency becomes and the more used it gets, uh, and, and also additionally the more profitable it becomes, the more people get involved with mining. And remember, mining is not just making new cryptocurrency, it's also validating transactions. It's the way that we know that when Bob sends uh, one unit of whatever cryptocurrency to Tom, that not only does Tom have the one unit, but the one unit has been accounted for, and it cannot exist somewhere else. In other words, the prevention of counterfeiting. And that is done through a bunch of different computers competing with each other to determine whether or not that actually happened, how that actually happened, when that actually happened. And the one that, and the one computer, and it's not a computer, but the one group of computers in a pool generally that successfully does it first gets a reward for it. What we call that mining. And, and that is uh, a combination of actually creating new currency and getting a transaction fee from the transactions in the block. That's proof of work. Proof of stake is where people stake a certain amount of currency on the network. And then there's varying ways in which that's done where with enough put up at stake, you have rights to a, a portion of a node that's a, a computer bank run by a group that basically doesn't have to compete. It's a cooperative environment in proof of stake where all of the computers doing the processing are cooperating instead of competing with each other. And this requires a hell of a lot less electricity. And so far, it's been quite reliable. So that addresses the electrical consumption concern. And again, I've said before, I think you're looking at VHS and Betamax and which one's going to win out. And realize both of those technologies have been replaced by better technologies at this point. So take the full analogy for what it is. All right, so now let's address actually Jeff's issue with, first of all, I agree that permaculture is sedition, and I am all for sedition as an anarchist. And this is where I've had conflicts with many of what we call the purple breathers in permaculture who want to get government involved in everything and government to solve everything. That was never the purpose of permaculture. Permaculture was founded by an anarchist that didn't know he was an anarchist. That's Bill Mollison. Uh, because I think Bill Mollison, as much as I love the guy, used the wrong definition of the word anarchism. And an absolute avowed anarchist who is still with us and has not passed away, David Holgram, who says, I am an anarchist and I am for a stateless society. You cannot have a movement created by two anarchists and then it can be uh, seen as a, a method by which we can use the government to get things done. The two are not compatible with each other. So I am all about Jeff's concept of sedition and localized economies and let systems. However, I think the greatest let systems in the world could be built on the cryptocurrency infrastructure. And when he says things like being tested, uh, false flagged, etc., I understand the viewpoint. 
And I understand that the state will try to do exactly what he's saying to do. My problem with people that take the approach that Jeff does is, if you, if you sit them down and say, tell me exactly how and why cryptocurrency works, they can't tell you. They don't know, and it's not because they're not smart enough, it's because they don't like it or they, they, they see it as a negative thing, so they don't actually dig into it and figure out, well, how does it work? And when you say something like they're going to make it illegal, well, go ahead. They're going to shut it down. Well, go ahead. And I'm not saying they can't do a lot of damage economically to the cryptocurrency trading world. And when we're seeing that world take a freaking beating right now, and I don't know what's going to happen in the end, but when you talk about shutting down a cryptocurrency, remember, what is the purpose of a cryptocurrency? It's not meant to be an investment vehicle. It's meant to be a unit of exchange that is dis distributed and not centralized and not controllable by any central authority. It's meant to be a way that Bob and Tom can do business with each other and avoid the banking system and avoid the state. And if you could shut it down, they would have shut it down. And this whole concept that Satoshi was like a CIA operative or something and all of this stuff was started by the government in the first place, it, again, you, if you say that, you don't understand the technology. And trust me, friends, this was the same argument that was made about the Internet. When the Internet really started to come into its own in the 90s, there were plenty of people that said, this is the new world order and they're going to control everything. The problem is when you create a system like the Internet or a system like cryptocurrency, too many people can do too many things with it. And, and one of the, the, the great fallacies of cryptocurrency is that we need the Internet to exchange cryptocurrency. We can exchange cryptocurrency without the Internet. There's a lot of different ways to do that. And then this is, in the end, the Internet's not going away, and you can't set up the Internet to prevent cryptocurrency. It, it doesn't work that way. And, and, again, I'm going to tell you that every single time, and I haven't had this conversation with Jeff, so I'll be fair and say possibly he does know, but every single time I hear this argument, whether it comes from the gold bugs somebody in permaculture, the anti-New World Order, tinfoil hacker, I don't care who it is, no matter who it is. And I've had this conversation with people that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and I've had this conversation with people that can't rub two nickels together and get a dime out of it. Across the broad spectrum, I've had this conversation with people that feel they have insiders in the IMF, people that have insiders in the, And every single one of them, when you say, okay, Explain to me how a simple Bitcoin transaction operates. They'll throw a buzzword or two in that they've heard, or they'll say, well, it's just math or it's just code or whatever, but they cannot describe how it works and why it works. They do not understand the nature of self-adjusting algorithms within the system. So when you hear something like, well, they'll shut down Bitcoin mining in China, I don't care. Well, how can you not care? Well, because if they shut down Bitcoin mining in China... Let's say they actually do it, instead of say they're going to do it again. Um, and then all those mining banks in China stop mining Bitcoin or Zcash or any currency that's being mined. All that happens is, very, very quickly, the algorithms in the code adjust. And the difficulty of mining goes down so that less computers can do the same work. The only reason it's so damn hard to mine these currencies now is so many people are doing it. When Bitcoin first started, you could take a, a, a used laptop and start mining with a CPU. It only got harder because more people did it. The less people that do it, the easier it gets. 
So from the permaculture standpoint, I believe with cryptocurrencies like ARK, they're going to create the ability to create your own blockchain. The, the localized exchange that Jeff's talking about with Let's can be built on a digital currency that can be exchanged in a private network, which is far more effective than trying to print Let's on a piece of paper. That doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. We could create systems based on blockchain that operate as, as easily as exchanging silver or gold tokens, but are far more divisible and fungible. And, and that is, that is exciting. And we can do that on, a, again, on a private network. There's no reason that can be done on a private network. We can do that where people basically would have code that would be like a wallet, like a, like a ledger nano, but it's proprietary to their network. We could do that like a handshake exchanging contacts from one device to another. See, th this is the thing. Not everything needs to be on a freaking exchange. You know, like, like, uh, Bit, Bitfinex or Binance or, uh, you know, uh, Bitrix or anything. It not, it, you're talking wallet to wallet exchanges that are private to the individuals that run them. You want to make that illegal? Go ahead. Good luck. You want to seize my currency? Go ahead. Steal it. That, that's the thing that I think people really don't understand. Well, we'll just see, they'll seize it all. Go ahead. Steal it. Oh, you can't? Yeah. Yeah. You want my 22-word private key? Gee, I lost it. Sorry. Or my 22-word seed? So you can reestablish it. I lost it. I don't know where it is. Shit's gone, man. Sorry. It, it, it's, it's just, it doesn't work the way people think it works. It's, it, to say government created this would be government knowingly created something. At first, it doesn't have the imagination to create. But created something and put it out into the ecosystem that has its own life and is completely uncontrollable. One, what they want is control. You can shut down exchanges. You can shut down the money-making aspect of trading currencies. The ability of one, one group of people to form their own currency and do business with each other apart from you, it's over. Game over. Done. Finished. Sorry about your luck. So it is a method of sedition. It in of itself is sedition. Hopefully Jeff will listen to this. I'd be interested to hear... I'd be interested to have a conversation with Jeff about this where we could educate each other on what each other knows and come to maybe something closer to a consensus. Anyway, with that, let's uh, go ahead and uh, have a question for Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic, mechanic, the humble mechanic on acquiring a vehicle that somebody else just didn't take care of and what to do next. What's up, everybody? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes in from Chris. Chris has a 2000 Toyota Sienna minivan with about 200K on it that he recently reacquired from his ex-wife, and she didn't do any regular maintenance on it. Boy, is not doing regular maintenance on a car one of the worst possible things for it. Anyway, Chris since then has changed the engine oil, the spark plugs, wires, coil pack, and catalytic converter, and now has a question about cleaning the intake valves to get it running like it used to, and Chris wants to know what I would suggest for cleaning the intake valves on a budget. So Chris, to me, the word that sticks out there is on a budget. And guys, if you've ever been to the auto parts store or Walmart or even looked online, you walk down the aisle of treatments, right? The, the mechanic in the can or the fix it all in a can. And it's like a million selections and they all have these crazy outrageous claims that 
They're going to clean your engine in one treatment or stop that coolant leak forever in 30 seconds. And, and it's ridiculous, right? That's just marketing like our good friend uh, Paul Wheaton says. So you, you have this huge selection of things and it's so much gimmick and it's confusing and some are cheap. Some are like four bucks and some are like 30 bucks. And what the hell do you do? And you could pull your hair out trying to figure out all of this. So let me try and rein that in and talk about a few things that you can do in addition to what you're trying to do that may actually give you better results. And of course, I'll talk about a couple of fuel treatments. So I read your list of maintenance that you did, and a couple of things I would like to add for you to do is to replace the engine air filter because a dirty air filter can stifle your engine. Guys, an engine is simply an air pump. Air is sucked in, air is pumped out. I had a teacher in tech school that when we were talking about air conditioning cycles, he would always use the phrase, if you have no sucky, you have no pumpy. So get a good air filter on it. Also a fuel filter, and this one, it's very similar. You're, you're potentially restricting fuel flow due to dirt and contaminants built up in the fuel filter. So get that replaced as well. When it comes to cleaning the intake valves, there's usually three different approaches that you can take. There's the treatment that you put inside the gas tank. Right, You fill it up and you dump the little bottle in, and that will go through your fuel system. It'll go into your injectors. Your injectors will spray and mix with the air, hit the backs of the intake valves, go into the cylinder. Combustion happens, and your engine cycle is complete. These cleaners will have extra detergents in them and may, may clean the backs of the intake valves a little bit. Then you have where you run it through the air intake system. And this can be like a spray can, or some people will disconnect a vacuum line and will suck some of the fluid out of the canister it comes in, in through the intake system and a product called Seafoam that actually does work pretty well. And I've even used ATF, automatic transmission fluid, because it's so detergent heavy, can do some good for cleaning the backs of the intake valves. You just have to be really careful with doing these liquid treatments like that. If you're not taking your time, you will suck too much liquid in. You can do damage to your engine. So I highly recommend if, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, don't even try it. Just forget I said it, but that is an option. The third method that I have seen do some pretty good for cleaning fuel systems and intake valves is where we disconnect the vehicle's fuel systems downstream of the injectors. So we disconnect the fuel pump, the fuel filter, and actually run the car off a separate canister with a chemical inside of it that is powerful enough to run the car and has a very heavy amount of detergent packages in. That can do really well. You won't find something like that at your local auto parts store. That is like professional use only. We ran it at the dealership. There was a like early 2000s generation turbocharged car that would develop varnish buildup on the backs of the valves. Not not carbon buildup like we're seeing today on direct injection, but varnish buildup and running that treatment would actually help a little bit. You rarely got a true drivability concern. What you tend to get would be a, a cold start misfire symptom. So you're, you're on a budget and you want to get these intake valves clean. I would say the best thing you can do that you're going to kind of do anyway is use good quality fuel and make sure you're doing that. Also, Chris, make sure you're driving your car, man. Fill it up with fuel and, dude, the next time you get on the highway, mash that magic right pedal to the floor 
and, you know, blow the junk out of it or do the Italian tune-up. Those are two of the phrases that are maybe the most common that people have heard of. I call it a spirited test drive because it sounds a little bit safer than uh, than blowing the junk out or anything like that. But put some good quality fuel in it and get it out and drive it. And that does so much, so much good for a vehicle to actually drive it, right? That's what they're meant for. They're not meant to sit like they do, what, 95% of the time. They are meant to be driven. So put some good quality fuel in it. If you want to add a treatment into the tank, there's two products that I have seen pretty good results with. It's not going to really fix a severe problem, right? There's there's points where you're past the mechanic in a can, and it's going to do you no good. They're not going to fix anything like that, but they can help with a little bit of buildup. That seafoam being one of them, this can help break up some of that junk in the injectors or wash a little bit off the backs of the intake valves. The other one is from a company called BG, and it's 44K. Those are really the two that I would go with. Uh, Seafoam, I don't know, you can get it at Advanced Auto or AutoZone or whatever parts store for like 8 or $10. 44K is a little bit more expensive. It's around 25 bucks. You can buy one and try it and see if it works. I'd probably do Seafoam first just because it was cheaper. And then if that didn't do what you wanted it to do, run 44K. But understand, guys, that the only way you're going to know that this actually did something is to do pre and post examination. You can't use the butt dyno for this because your butt dynamometer is probably not properly calibrated. Some people will use fuel economy as a barometer for whether this works or not. And fuel economy is so heavily dependent on the way you drive. So subconsciously, you can be altering your test results without really even knowing it. But guys, for the most part, I think most of that crap that you see down the aisle at the auto parts store is absolute garbage, a waste of your five, six, seven, ten, twenty, thirty dollars. For the most part, Chris, dude, just put good quality fuel in it and drive it. And that can do just as much good. Now, if you're having a problem because your car isn't running right, then maybe we need to figure out what the problem is. If it's just that it doesn't feel like it's good or feel like it's running right, then that may just be the case. And I don't think the Toyota Sienna was ever a horsepower monster anyway. But if you feel like there's an actual problem with the car, your check engine lights on, then let's address that first before we worry about dumping a can of treatment and maybe or maybe not fixing anything. So Chris, good question. I hope that helps. Knock that easy maintenance out, but really before you do anything else, that needs to get done no matter what. So guys, keep the questions coming. If you want to check out more of my stuff, you can head over to HumbleMechanic.com or check out the YouTube channel, oddly enough, called Humble Mechanic. Jack, TSP, I hope you guys have an awesome weekend, and I will talk to you again next time. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add that performing regular maintenance on your vehicle is the least expensive way to maintain a vehicle. Any other option is more expensive in the end. Uh, next up, I have a question for uh, Michael Jordan on propolis uh, for medicinal use. Hey, everyone. It's the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan, taking your questions on apiary manage mead making and the keeping of bees. So I just got back from a big win on our CBD medicated mead at the Mazer Cup. And I got this question on propolis. And since I'm getting ready to do more medicated meads and use propolis in some of them, this is a great question. This question comes from Mel. How much bee propolis in granules form does a body take for overall general health? Or how much does one that suffers from... uh 
Candidus. I think it's called C-A-N-D-I-D-I-A-S-I-S. Candidus. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, it's an infection, I believe, in the mouth. I've recently become aware of B-propolis and its overall health benefits, but I can't find online chart explaining how much to take on a daily basis for various health issues. We have a relatively local source that's selling a gallon for 136 bucks. How does this cost compare nationally? How does one ingest it with mixed foods or teaspoons or in a fill-it-yourself gel cap? Are there any other issues that we need to be aware of? Thank you for your help and on this issue, Mel. Well, there is some need to know about taking the powerful ingredient known as bee glue. Prophilus is an extremely useful supplement that can be, have many health benefits when taken properly. I think many tinctures is the best way to use propolis using an alcohol base. The propolis tincture is about 50% propolis, 10% alcohol, and 40% additives for flavor, extra health benefits, like adding bee pollen or mint for it. For general health purposes, I recommend a third of one half dropper full of 50% propolis extract a day. Uh, this is 50% propolis is the best squirted directly in the back of the mouth, swallowed uh, directly as a resin, and the ultra-pure pure product given as a, like in a waxy tincture. It is difficult to mix <clears throat> as a result of this because it has a waxy base, but I think it's the best ways to make it a tincture. So take your granules and make it into a tincture. Um, I have uh, people tilt their heads back and just squeeze it right in the back of their throat and swallow. Now, you can use chunks of propolis about the size of your thumbnail. Propolis chunks are simply raw pieces of bee propolis, unprocessed, raw, and 100% pure. These are uh, a, real, a real deal and really, and, and really good. You simply chew or swallow them whole. One word of caution, propolis is dark brown substance and can stain your teeth. So be careful when chewing it in chunks. For general health, I recommend one to two chunks of raw propolis per day. If fighting a cold or trying to prevent one, I double and even triple this. Propolis is a very, very great supplement that's using for fighting colds and preventive colds. Remember, if you're treating a specific health condition with propolis, you should want to adjust your doses accordingly and always see a doctor. I mean, I can only recommend from what I'm using and 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 what I think is good, but you should always see a doctor when you're using anything for medication. One of the best answers is propolis for anything that has to do with stomach, uh, gingivitis, things like this. This bioflavored rich nutrient provides strong defense against bacteria, viruses, and many other health challenges. The profit properties of natural wonder uh, that, that comes from this have been well studied around the world for many health conditions and considerations. It stops harmful and resistant bacteria, including MRSA and uh, Candida, right? C-A-N-D-I-D-A. So it, it does fight it in viral infections and reduces inflammation. Uh, the main compounds of propolis typically include uh, propylhilds, vitamins, including B2, 1, 6, vitamin C and E, many minerals, including magnesium, potassium, zinc, calcium, enzymes and antifungal and antibacterial uh, flavoroids plus uh, pinin, P-I-N-E-I-N-E, and several essential oils. Inherited from the tree resins themselves because that's what propolis is made from. So, you know, if you take uh, birch tree bark as, a, as, as an aspirin because it's, that's what the base is made of, made of uh, the antibacterial compounds of propolis are overwhelming. That uh, 
All these things that are in the trees are also in this propolis. You're going to get so many variables that it's crazy depending where you're at. Uh, you know, the bees cover from, cover everything with propolis in their hive. Uh, they even have the power to kill a mice in the hive. And then they, it, since the mice is so large, they cover it propolis. So when it rots, it will not contaminate the hive. So, I mean, it has very wonderful things. The study of the University of uh, Hindelburg University in Hindelburg, Germany, has tested propolis extract GH2002 against a variety of diseases causing bacteria, including MRSA, and Eastern, even very of cannabis that has uh, been found for streptococcus. So within six hours, propolis stopped the activity of the progressing of this and caused strep throat and to stop it and skin infections. The study also found that a high degree of antibacterial activity tested against this remedy of propolis killed strains of MRSA and inhibited the candidates as well. So, Mel, I think you're on the great track. Um, I think that this might help you a little bit. I think you should find out who you're getting your propolis from and see what they recommend. There's a guy in Oklahoma that does lots with tinctures and propolis. Uh, it, it's called the local beekeepers outlet. His name is Gary W. Breshi, B-R-E-I-S-H, B-R-E-I-S-C-H in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. Look him up on Facebook or Google local beekeeping outlook in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. Talk to Gary. Man, they make a lot of tinctures and stuff out of propolis. He would be able to help you a lot. So hopefully this will get you on a good track the track of using propolis. I know that propolis was used for the first filling because if you heat it up and then push it into areas, it gets hard and it's antibacterial, so it stopped the rotting of areas where they pushed it in for the tooth. So I know it was the first uh, cavity filler. So those are things to think about. Good for digestion, gingivitis. It's been around for a long time. Beekeepers love it, and it makes a superior glue. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer from a bee-friendly company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, telling you, hey, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small industry because we all have to start someplace and help your fellow man because one day you'll need help too. And on that note, hey, I hope Jack's uh, getting ready to rack off that mead we made in November. Looking forward to hearing the results of our trick-or-treat mead that we made there. Should be getting close. And, hey, thanks for everybody supporting us in our big win at the Mazer Cup this year. All right, next up I have a question for Paul Wheaton and with uh, an assist here by Josiah Wallingford on solar dehydrators. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Purpies.com. Once again here with Josiah Wallingford from Ethos.com. Uh, together, we do that permaculture smackdown show, the weekly video thing, Tuesdays at 2, where we unabashedly crush people's dreams with permaculture, I guess. I, that's probably – we got to come up with a better tagline than that, man. <laughs> it's a little rough. Yeah. It uh, could use improvement. <laughs> All right. Today, uh, we're going to talk about the solar food dehydrator that was built here at the 2017 Appropriate Technology Course. So each year for several years now, we've been doing a permaculture design course immediately followed by an appropriate technology course. And last year, we uh, managed to video the whole thing. So as all this is available on video at pdcvid.com. But uh, we're going we're gonna to tell you about this epic, awesome solar food dehydrator that was built last year. Um, and the, the, the best way 
to, to make it uh, sound good is to talk about things that are not good. And so uh, first step is if, if you're at home and you're drying a lot of your own food, like you have a, a mountain of apricots and you're going to dry this mountain of apricots uh, and you're going to use this electric food dehydrator, you might find that if you're going to dry a lot of apricots, that's going to add $900 to your electric bill that month. And then you might be thinking these dried uh, apricots are not that good. Um so it's like, wow, how can I have dried apricots without spending $900 and doing this? So in 2016, uh, at the ATC, a really crappy solar food dehydrator was built. Um, it did okay. It worked as it should. It took, it took generally a day and a half to two days to dry stuff. And I like to shoot for stuff that can dry stuff in less than a day. And it didn't hold very much. And it didn't, it didn't hold very much. So basically it looked like a glass case on an angle. Uh, and I, one of the elements I didn't like is that sun would get on the food. You know, granted, through the glass. I didn't like that one. Uh, and then there had galvanized metal in it. And I don't like galvanized metal on anything. And I got reasons for that. And I, and I think a lot of people come here and they get really frustrated with my values on <laughs> paint and glues and galvanized stuff. I don't like plywood or wafer board. Uh, I like to avoid cement. Uh, there's, there's, so it, it adds levels of challenge to the work that people are doing. And I got reasons for all of it, but let's not go into that right now. So that was the 2016 solar food dehydrator. So 2017 came around and I said, that's the big thing I want. I want a really good one. So I believe what we did create is really, really good. And big. It's big as hell. Oh, yeah. This is for homesteaders. This is not for people. I mean, if you're going to try and dry stuff into your backyard, I don't think, like, like this thing has a footprint to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's not, like, as big as a truck or anything, but, you know, it is pretty big. And it is portable. Uh, yeah, we put it on skids. You can drag it around and move it around. But uh, this is a downdraft style uh, uh, food dehydrator. Um, and I'll, and so basically what that means is it's got a glass and black ramp at an angle that's probably going up about seven and a half to eight feet. And then there's a huge cabinet, which holds all of your racks for drying stuff. Uh, and, and so overall, the way it is right now, it holds 18 times more food than the one that was from 2016. And then on, on top of that, we're, there's so much room in there. It's so spacious that we could still double rack and get 36 times more food than the 2016 uh, food dehydrator. So now um, uh, the way it works is a little bit different. The air is pulled up from the bottom, and it goes up the ramp and is put in at the top of the cabinet. And, again, this is called a downdraft style. And then uh, the air goes down in the cabinet, and then we've got another opening off to the side, and it pulls the air up again, and there's another ramp on top of the cabinet that will reheat that air again and pull it up uh, again. And now uh, we're finding that currently it will dry food in a little more than a day, uh, and that's thicker food. So, like, when you put thicker things down to dry. Um, okay. Let's talk about how it's built. 
the the solar ramp is glass over a blackened chamber, and it's three and a half inches thick, which is because of uh, we're using some two by fours right there. And the two by four, its width is three and a half inches. So it's a two by four on edge, and then it's got tongue and groove on the bottom, which we blackened with a natural paint, which we made. We made the paint as part of the appropriate technology course. Um, and Josiah, did you have some stuff you wanted to say about the paint? Uh, my only uh, uh, comment was that you could use regular paint. You could use steel or sheet metal, something like that, uh, if you wanted to be lazy. And because it takes a long time to make paint, but uh, it's de- definitely not as healthy or environmentally uh, uh, friendly. If you watch the video uh, of the ATC, then you'll see that I think three different recipes of paint were tried. Uh, in the end, they went with uh, basically, uh, rather than trying to blacken the surface with the propane torch, uh, they went with uh, sooting it. They, they used soot from the rocket mass heater and made a paint from the soot. Um, all right, we're running out of time, so I'm trying to move along quickly here. Uh, we first tried to use glass from sliding glass doors, but it blocks too much sun. It has UV protection and, and, and uh, um, some other things. And so even though it looked perfectly clear, it was blocking a lot of light. So we switched over to using shower door glass, which came from the Missoula. Uh, we've got a little store called Home Resource that reuses stuff. And so uh, uh, we got it from there. Um, I, I gotta say that for all the projects we do, we avoid toxic kick as much as possible. This was no exception. A lot of frustration from people about this, but I think in the end, we have an excellent product that worked really well. The racks, there's nine racks in there, uh, and they're made with stainless steel. It's a stainless steel mesh, uh, for the racks. Uh, and so far, it's only a single rack. Well, we might double rack later. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, and this came from, it was based loosely on a couple of downdraft style solar food dehydrators that are in an old YouTube video of mine. Um, and we actually made designs for the better downdraft style one of that. And then we improved on that with our changes. Now, if I could do it all over again, I think there's, there's two big things I would do differently. One is I think I'd make a much better door latch. I feel like the door latch that we have now is a little flimsy. And while it's cool, it's really cool the way it works, it's it just every time I use it, I feel like I'm about to break it. Uh, so I'd want something tougher and better. Uh, the other thing is I think I would make the, the glass part a steeper angle, which would make the whole thing a little bit smaller. But I'd probably make it about 15 to 20% steeper. Because of snow? Uh, no, I, I think it's because I think it would draw better. Because, like, right now, it's almost like a 45-degree angle. I think I want it much steeper so that the air will push faster. I'm, I'm shooting for being able to dry those apricots in less than a day. I think that's what it, that's the mark of a really good solar food dehydrator, and that's what I want to shoot for. That's what I want to end up at. So by making it steeper, I think the air will move faster. Plus, it works better when the sun is lower in the sky. Uh, which I think is going to be, you know, that time of year when you're doing a lot of dehydrating. The, the sun will be a little lower. Um, plans are available. Uh, this guy that was at the event is an architect and a draftsman, and so he made total plans uh, for this, which I think is super cool. Um, again, the full video is at pdcvid. pdcvid.com. Josiah just finished putting together that page. Um, 
And we're not going to be building one of these at this year's appropriate technology course because we build all new stuff each year. Uh, let's see. Oh, I got to say that when we talk about toxic ick, one thing that's in this is there's a little bit of silicone. Is we use a little bit of silicone goo between the pieces of glass. And that's it. You got anything else to say? Nope. Well, I think you nailed it, man. All right. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Okay, so my segment today really is not in response to a question. It'll be a little bit brief because I, I kind of gave a long response to the cryptocurrency question. It's compatibility with permaculture, so that, that could even count, I guess, as my segment today. But I wanted to talk to you about a video that I did and, and, and the reflections that I've had on it since I did it. Um, I haven't ever actually done a video that I've sat down and watched four or five times in a row until yesterday. Because it is, it's not me talking or me presenting. It's just imagery of something that I, along with many of you who have come here and chipped in at one time or another, have created over the last four and a half, really almost five years. So as many of you know, I moved to this property almost five years ago now. I guess it is five years. And the fall of that year, I put in the swales that are the foundation of the three-quarter acre food forest. And I've done a lot of other things, too. And that system took a lot longer to get going than it was going to take in my head. It took an awful lot of managing those ducks that are not here anymore, pushing them through it, making them part of the fertility yields, and then eventually being willing to say, this is the time for that portion to end and to let secession happen. And so for the past about 45 days, the, the ducks were confined to the one-acre west pasture. Spring came. The spring rains have come multiple times since then. And what we kind of wound up like, you know, one of those cars when you're a kid, you wind the, 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 to the toy car up. And you finally, once you put enough into it, you let it go and the car takes off. And, and that's what I hoped to see this year is that car take off. And all of the little things along the way that we realized were mistakes and that we tweaked and the additional plantings and the replantings and the, this is a dead zone. How do we stop this from being a dead zone? And, you know, what do we do and what do we seed with next and all? It, that was all the winding. And I, I went out there yesterday. And I, I started walking around taking some pictures of stuff. And I was just going to put together kind of a collage of some pictures and throw it up on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. And I just realized, here it is. It's not done yet. You know, it, it's it's nowhere near its peak. But, my God, there's there's fruit everywhere. There's plants I don't even recognize that are starting to come up. There are plants I do recognize coming up, but... I planted those seeds four years ago, and none of them seem to have ever germinated, and yet here they are now. And it's only March, and the greatest growth of this year is yet to come. The apples have barely begun to even break bud. You know, so I say everything's laid down with fruit. Well, everything that 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 comes out early is laid down with fruit. The apple trees and some of the other trees are just starting to put leaves on, and it already looks like this. And so. I took some pictures and I walked through the swales and when I walked through the swales I did some video and I did some video of some other things and when I got done with it I went this should all be put together in a, in a video like a slideshow that turns into a video video and I put some really awesome Jimmy Buffett uh, music to it 
uh, Tin Cup Chalice and Wonder Why We Go Home kind of blended into it. And then something kind of really special happened. So I'm walking around, and of course there's jets and everything. And like all, every morning it seems like Lockheed flies a couple F-16s over me to see what I'm doing. Uh, it's morning, so it's rush hour. So the nine-mile road out there is a pretty busy road in the mornings. Uh, it's dead quiet. Everything except rush hour morning and rush hour evening, by the way. Uh, but, you know, the big trucks are coming through the low boys and stuff like that. So I come down the last swale, and there's like this really loud, noisy truck. And then I just I hear this mockingbird just singing his ass off. And I'm like, please go away, truck. And it did. I'm like, please, nobody else come. Just give me 30 seconds here. And I walked that last piece, and it's dead quiet, and that mockingbird is just, he seems like he's celebrating the quiet. It's finally quiet for him, too. And he sings, and he sings, and he sings. And I faded the music out in the video, and it ends with this bird singing. And at the end of this video, I put a little, and there's some text for different parts of the video, but at this, this very end, I put, Make the most of your dash. Plant a forest. Leave a legacy. And since putting that video out, I've heard from quite a few people that said, this is not the only forest you've planted, Jack. I take walks like that in my forest every day. And, I, I, you know, we get caught up in politics. We get caught up in the geopolitical situation. We get caught up in all the things that the ass clowns in D.C. and elsewhere are doing. We get caught up in pop culture gossip. We get caught up in the stupidity that they put on our TV. And I think what we need to realize is all of those things are like a giant net that the people in power cast out to catch us in every day. So at least we not break free for even 10 minutes. Well, let's put the Kardashians out there. Let's talk about Bruce Jenner's lack of a penis, and now he has a new name, Caitlyn, or whatever. Or whatever the dumbass shit that they put out. And boy, when you take a walk like that and you think about the fact that you've created a system that is self-replicating, that will continue to be self-replicating and self-maintaining after you're gone, that none of that stuff really matters in the long term. When we study history, we learn that empires rise and fall like the tides, as we talked about today. And there's some things that are going to happen that we don't want to happen that we can't stop. There's some things that might happen that if we do things, maybe we can stop or forestall them. And we should when we can. But in the end, we will die. We will rot. Our bodies will go dust onto dust and return to the earth. And no matter what you believe about what happens after that happens, on the other side, so to say, This side is still here. And the things that we can leave behind are children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and forests. Those are the two things that we can really leave behind, that are concrete, that are material, that will continue to give birth to new generations. And if you think about it, a forest is a lot like a multi-generational family. Your overstory are your great-grandparents. And in a forest, it's more like the ancient ancestor, the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, because that's how long they live. And as you come down through the layers of the forest, you have children and grandchildren, and you have the forest advancing and continuing to create new generations of elders and youngsters alike. And when we create forests like this, that don't just provide shade, that we who planted them may never sit in, They provide food, and fibers, and medicines. 
for children we may never know, grandchildren we may never know, great-grandchildren we may never know, and the great-grandchildren of people that are alive with us today that we will never even know those people. That's what legacy is all about, is having the wherewithal to think far enough in front of yourself and be humble enough to accept your mortality and realize there are some great things that even the least of us can do. And I also do agree with Jeff Lawton that these are acts of sedition. Because they say to the people in power, that's nice that you think you're in control of everything, but you can't even control nature's ability to turn this tiny seed into a tree, to take this acorn and create an oak that will stand 300 years from now. You can cut that one down, but I've planted enough that the acorns they drop will create new oaks that will be 300 years old and drop acorns, which will create new oaks that will be 300 years old and drop new acorns. And long after all of this empire and the next one and the one after it are gone, there will still be the children of children of children of ancient oak trees and ancient food trees and even herbs that don't live that long. They will have the umpteenth millionth grandchild or cousin still self-replicating because the best way to resist is to use the soil and its ability to regenerate life. The number one way you stop an insurrection, a sedition, the number one way you do that is you starve the enemy. You can't starve the people who understand how to cultivate life from the soil and that which gives life from the soil, food. You can't starve them out. Especially when they've learned to coexist with you in ways where they don't really stand out. The best sedition is accomplished by the person that looks like they're not doing it. Plant trees. Leave a legacy. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like this show and the work we do and you'd like to help support us, there's a very simple way to do that. All you have to do is uh, go to tspaz.com whenever you want to shop online. You can see all of my reviews there. But as long as you shop online through TSPAS, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. The product I have for review for you today is one I discovered last fall. A guy found one in a, in a ceiling. It's called the Nebo 650 Larry Work Light. And it turned out that Larry, the reason it came with the name Larry, is the people that built this light uh, had this electrician that did work for them. He was the hardest working guy they knew, and they knew this would be a good tool for like computer technicians and electricians. So they decided to name it after that Larry. So Larry's an actual electrician. But this guy found one of these things up in a uh, ceiling where somebody had done some work pulling cable or something and probably left it on because the batteries were dead. Well, he pulled it down out of there, figured out what it was, popped the thing off it, figured out it used a couple AAAs, threw them in there, um, popped the set back in, it worked. And he's like, this thing's fantastic. So he looked it up and they're like eight bucks, eight, nine bucks a piece. So he ordered a couple and he actually sent me one. He's like, I, I want you to see this so bad, I'm sending you one. So he sends me this light, and I look at this, and I go, this is fantastic little light, bright as heck. 
And, you know, you can stand it up. You can use the magnet to put it on something. And when I started researching, I found out, like, this is a light that, like, most uh, data technicians that do computer cabling work, they have to get underneath a desk or whatever, electricians, people that work in ceilings and all use. Which is funny because I kind of come from that background, you know, 30 years ago almost now. Um, and, and I guess they just weren't around back then because we just used the little mini mag lights back then. This is far superior for that. So it was a lot better light. It's a great EDC light. I now have one in all of my glove boxes in the car. Uh, I have one in each shop building, etc. I keep one in the greenhouse just on hanging from a string because it's there if I need it, what have you. And at the price, it's really easy to justify doing. You want to check this thing out, guys. Again, the Nebo, N-E-B-O, 6350 Larry Work Light. Uh, there is a, a, a miss, a piece of misinformation in the description of one set of them on Amazon. In my uh, review, I explained the reality there and why I believe it's just an error. And I haven't even checked today. They may have fixed it by now. Who knows? Uh, but this is a good, solid company and a good, solid product. And I really recommend that you uh, check it out. Again, the Nebo 6350 Larry Worklight item of the day at eight bucks. It's a buy. Uh, with that, let's talk about today's song of the day. Um, today's song of the day is called Roll On by Kid Rock. And Kid Rock's a guy that people either love or hate. And I, I would say this for Kid Rock, whether people believe it or not, if you hate him, at least you hate him for who he really is, if you know who he really is. Because the guy's one of the most genuine people in music that I know of anyway, at, at his level anyway. He calls himself the greatest rock star there is, uh, and things like that. And he really is incredibly talented. Even the music he does that I don't like, I acknowledge the fact that a guy that can do everything from rap to country to hard rock to soulful music on, on, on par with people like Bob Seger, that's pretty freaking amazing. He also plays about every musical instrument that, he, that there is, and he, he taught himself to do it. He grew up in a family that a lot of people now say, well, he was rich as a kid. I think he grew up in a way a lot of us would like to raise our kids. His father was a successful business person, owned a couple car dealerships. He wasn't like, you know, a billionaire or something. They had an estate. His estate was a six-acre piece of property. Plenty of us own property like that. He grew up, you know, picking apples in the family apple orchard and things like that. He's, I think he's a genuine person. Uh, he may live a lifestyle that some of us disapprove of. Others don't care, prefer not to emulate it, and some of us say, well, I'll do that, but not that. Um, but he's always been open and honest about who he is, and I think this song Roll On is very much the same type of thing. It also fits in with my discussion today about food forestry and using the most of your dash. This song is about aging in life and remaining as much of who you are as you can, but learning from things as you go. Not, you know, We talked yesterday about limelight from Rush and, and, and not letting... Uh, becoming famous, get away from you and, and change who you really are. Um, and this song kind of fills in that theme as well. And one of the points in it, he says, this is what I want and I'm not going to bitch about it now that it's here, having to deal with fans and media and all that other stuff. But in the end, what he says he wants most is to see his grandkids grow up and be an old man sitting on the porch and in his words still getting high and, and being proud of his kids. And uh, I may not choose to do the exact same thing, but man, you gotta, you gotta respect a person that has so much. He says, the most important thing to me are my kids and my eventual grandkids. At least I do. He's come a long way. It's funny. He's only a year older than I am. He's born in 1971. I think he's, uh, Got a pretty incredible life, and uh, 
I don't know if you don't like them. Maybe you'll like this song anyway. I find that a lot of times people say, I can't rock that. Blah, blah, blah. Have you ever heard this song? No? Well, listen to it. You know, and I go, oh, that's Kid Rock. Yeah, that's Kid Rock with Sheryl Crow doing country, even though neither one of them's a country artist. That type of thing. Um, this song's not really a country song. It is kind of a folksy rock song, a little bit of heaviness going on with it. I like it. I hope you do, too. It's a good song for a Friday. It's a good song about making the most of your dash. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well,